is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew Frank. Howdy. Hi, Stuart. That's right. This is this is Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with multiple co-hosts, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves, starting with uh, Paul Williams. <laughs> well, you, you ruined the surprise. All right, this is Paul Williams. I have nothing to add to that introduction. <laughs> and I am still Stuart Brigham. <laughs> and I'm Chris Chu, and I'm back. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Chris You're Chris is a special guest and a returning guest on the show. Uh, this is your third time now, Chris, on air? Uh, on air, minus our failed like, video stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what that means, right? I, I, I don't know, Stuart. Oh, your third date joke. Yes, we're bringing no, that No, 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 no. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. Well, this is this is an internal medicine podcast, and uh, Paul, what do, what do we normally do on this podcast, and what are we doing tonight? Well, we're we're a podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. But tonight, the expert interviews are, are with ourselves, and we are also not experts. So tonight, we're going to be reviewing um, some recent articles that we've individually found kind of interesting, and then maybe some hot takes on some other articles, uh, time allowing. And they're also not interviews. That's a fair point. And we're also sort of work, workshopping the name for this. So this might be called the TPS report or jam session. I'm not sure. We're going to cram an acronym in, into this somehow. But Chris, why don't you, why don't you set, us, set us off here? Where do you want to start tonight? Set us off. As Paul sort of said, this is going to be sort of the curbsider version of the journal club. We're going to talk about some of our favorite recent journals, articles, as well as maybe some headlines from popular media. They're going to be broken in two sections. The first section is going to be the main article reviews that each host has sort of handpicked to talk about. And then after that, we'll sort of have a short time to do some hot takes on other articles or headlines that we want to talk about. So, you know, I think Stuart, so a couple of things that we're going to do with each article. So for the main reviews, we're going to talk about the clinical question that's addressed, the patient populations that uh, the article targets, as well as strengths, weaknesses, and and the most important part is the bottom line for each article. Um, and then afterwards, we had talked about doing maybe a rating system. I don't know if we've, um, maybe we can workshop that as well, but I had thought of maybe doing like a star rating like you would, would for a movie, but we can talk about that later. We can maybe. say we kick it to the curb. <laughs> Maybe maybe something food themed since it's a uh, knowledge food. I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll no, come up with yeah. something. The important thing is to not think of anything until we actually get right to that point, and then just kind of <laughs> mull our way through it. I think that sounds optimal. Okay, let's talk about the first article. All right, Stuart, you first. The first one is a New England Journal article from March twentieth of uh, of this year. It's uh, education outcomes in a duty hour flexible trial in internal medicine. So let's just get to the point. the The entire purpose of this. This project was to look at uh, the current ACGME duty hours restriction. So the whole – I still have a hard time understanding what exactly the duty hour restrictions are. I believe it's 16, 24, and 28 hours depending on the PGY year. And um, it compares the standard hour protocol compared to a flexible scheduling system, which is more in line with what we we were initially trained underneath. That's the 30-hour restriction um, that was initially passed, I believe, in 2003 um, with 80 hours per week. 
What'd you guys think about this article? First off, I thought it was, I'm just curious. I, I thought it was interesting that the residents did not like the flexible duty hours, but the program directors liked it and thought, <laughs> thought that it improved education. Yeah. So the residents, it, it was, it was more of a perception. So it didn't really change in training exam scores it also didn't really seem to change um, patient outcomes either. So what it changed is, was more of a subjective perception in how they felt about the program, which isn't really too surprising. One of which we, you know, you've been a PGY one or two, and now we're, you're going to go to PGY three or two or three year, and we're going to change your hours and throw everything around. And yeah, it's going to be a little chaotic, but here's kind of the corollary. So I went to my daughter, she's uh, 16. And uh, I, I asked her in a few of her friends, I said, Hey, how would you like to go to school for four hours, come home and do some uh, computer-based learning for about four hours instead of the, what you're doing right now? And they're like, 100% of them said, yeah, it'd be great. The problem is if you, if you measure something based on a subjective response or a subjective feeling with how you're either a- adapting to the, to the program or not adapting to the program, you're, you're, in my eyes, you're essentially setting yourself up for failure. There's no objective measure there. If you look at the in-training exam score, there's there's no change in the actual examination score. Um, and it's not really testing what, to me, seems to be an appropriate end result when you look at training, and that's patient outcomes, especially patient outcomes after they've gone through the training program. And unfortunately, my one of the concerns that I have, not just for this, this generation of physicians, but every generation of physicians, is an appropriate amount of stress inoculation for our physicians. And one of the concerns that I have is that if we're not appropriately stress inoculating during residency, when they graduate and, and go into their staff years, unfortunately, we're setting them up for failure. And that's one of the ultimate concerns that I have. Now, ultimately, I, I don't think this article really solves anything except for, yeah, we know residents hate it and program directors like it, but uh, I, I think there's still some room. Well, I think there's there's a couple, it just brings up a couple of interesting points. I, there's one thing I you may not have mentioned, you, that was a lot of good information, but it's interesting that there was no difference in burnout between the two groups, right? right so right. it's so it's, it doesn't matter. The hours did not change the fact that we're burning out our residents regardless. Right. And you can, you can talk about that a lot. The other thing to consider is that this is just one of a series of articles and, and th- results Absolutely. that come out for the iCompare trial. So, But I was talking to some colleagues about this, and I, I agree with you, Stuart. I think if you ask someone who's in the middle of doing 100 push-ups, how does this feel right now? <laughs> They're going to say, I hate it. But if you, so I think for maybe patient outcomes, I think is certainly a valuable measure. But I think also looking back retrospectively, asking these residents after the fact, how satisfied with career training now that you're actually out in practice, I think you might see a difference than asking someone in the middle of a horrific work hours, how are you feeling right Absolutely. now? Because I, I think that's, it's not something that's terribly meaningful to me when you're sort of in the thick of training. And, and, and I, I don't, I don't know how, how you felt about your own training, Paul, but when I look back and I look at the 30 hour calls, you know, I, I hated it, but after the fact... I look back at the training that I had during those, those times where I was, my feet were really stuck to the fire. And I feel like that taught me how to think under pressure. And I think that's important. And, and that it's difficult to, to uh, simulate that in any way, shape or form when you are restricting their hours. And I, I, there's something about just experience and not just experience about what we're talking about with uh, Dr. Gr- um, uh, Dr. Dollywall, but just the experience of seeing a, a significant number of patients, but seeing their outcomes as it occurs in real time. So if you admit a patient with, I don't know, um, with, with septic shock, you're able to see in real time the outcome. Did I make the right decision or not? And so you're able to essentially see, see that conclusion before your eyes. And that ultimately is going to solidify that patient experience more so than an inappropriate handoff. And I've seen so many inappropriate handoffs. Don't right. get me, do not get me started on that. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't think we have time to get you started on that. <laughs> I think, uh, for the, so for the audience, the, the, basically for this, 
they they're it's going to be a tiered rollout of this study. I think the patient safety data right. is going to be coming out in another year or two. I think the reason they started doing this in the first place, I think it was more for patient safety than actually for quality of life for the physicians. I, I'm not sure if that's completely right. true. But so the patient safety data is, I think, what would be most strongly towards pushing people to change change things. Yeah. I, Again, one of the things I must hammer home, though, the patient safety data is is going to be delayed. So what you need to look at is patient safety data on those physicians who have graduated and then three to four years out. How are they able to handle patients on their own and practice independently? You've got to look at that data. I think that's a good spot to end. Chris, what's what's our next story? Paul, do you want to go next? I sure. Like this one. So the article I chose is a cluster randomized trial of blood pressure reduction in black barber shops by Victor et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, also from this year. Um, it's a nifty little article that actually looks at a community pharmacy intervention uh, in barber shops. And so what they did is they actually took uh, 319 black male barbershop patrons and randomized the barbershops themselves that these patrons went to on at least uh, a monthly basis to either a intervention where pharmacists would monitor the blood pressure and prescribe medications or to one where they were screened, identified as being hypertensive, and then advised by their barber to please seek medical follow-up. And so, as you might imagine, um, there should be no real surprises here, but the barber shops that actually had pharmacist interventions were these these patients who were, by the way, um, in terms of who was included, were non-Hispanic black males who got at least one haircut every six weeks for greater than six months. Uh, between 35 and 79, with a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 on one, one, more than two screening days, um, and not on hemodialysis or chemotherapy. That was the group that was included. And so in the intervention group, this group would be seen on a monthly basis, evaluated by pharmacists who would then prescribe medications under collaborative practice agreement, um, and then titrate these medications to a blood pressure goal of less than 130 over 80. And then the takeaway point for this is that the group that was in the intervention group had a significantly um, greater reduction in systolic blood pressure than the group that was in the control group that was just advised to see follow up with their, with their doctor. So it's, there are some things that I liked about it. I, I love the idea that it was sort of a active engagement of a community. I like the fact that it was sort of thinking outside the box. The, the study design, a little weird. You had to start on a two drug regimen and that drug regimen was amlodipine plus an ACE or an ARB. Um, and then if you had to add a third agent, they recommended indapamide, which I think I've used exactly never. Um, <laughs> Ditto. And and they they justify this in the appendix. So indapamide was cheaper than chlorothaladone where they were doing this. And you actually see higher adherence with ARBs than you do with hydrochlorothiazide or other thiazide diuretics. And so they they explain some of it. It's not the agents I would have chosen, but I think that doesn't change the fact that if you have this intensive community-based pharmacist-driven intervention, you're going to see a much um, greater effect on blood pressure than on people who are just told they should see their doctor. So I thought it was a nifty little intervention that the other potential downside is that it would require a huge amount of resources because you had pharmacists in the barbershops. They were doing point-of-care pharmacy – I'm sorry, point-of-care uh, basic metabolic panels to make sure the electrolytes were okay. Um, just it, it, would, it would require a large amount of resources, but it's a population that's at risk and, and would certainly benefit from it. So overall, a pretty, a pretty nifty study, I thought. I'm just interested to see where this goes from here as far as like this, I, I feel like this would be hypothesis generating for like multiple other similar outreach projects. I know in Philadelphia here, there's an impact program where you basically have these like 
community uh, health navigators, pa- people from the community that have experience with the healthcare system, sort of helping other people, because there's some inherent distrust of physicians for whatever reason. And uh, so having someone from the community sort of walk people through it, and I think that's where the barbershop idea came from. People tell their barbers all sorts of things, and they trust their barbers. They're visiting them frequently, so it, it was just a brilliant, I thought, use of, of that relationship. A hundred percent. Yeah, they actually speculated that um, you know, a lot of the people in the study lived alone. A lot of the patients and, and the enrollees in the study lived alone, and so the barbershop really was their support network. And so to sort of bring the the health intervention there to the actual place where the support network was, it was just it was ingenious. And obviously, the ramifications for things like tobacco cessation or diabetes management or COPD management, like a lot of stuff that our pharmacists trade under collaborative practice agreement, like the possibilities are endless. So it's, it's a really neat idea that I think you're right is broadly applicable to a lot of chronic diseases. And uh, just for the audience at home who doesn't have Skype video, uh, Stuart is his cat's tail is like stroking his face right now. And you may have heard earlier in the recording, Stuart's cat was going crazy. So uh, yeah, just, just to explain <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if I'm, I'm trying to ignore it. So if hard. Paul or I seem distracted, uh, Chris or anybody, any more comments on this article before we move on? No, I, I agree. It, it could be really cool to apply this to many, many other, um, areas. I think like around here where I live in Ohio, we have lots of these like senior living centers where we have a lot of, um, older, older patients who spend the time, you know, doing bingo nights and things like that. It'd be interesting to apply something very similar to that in these, these, uh, these populations. Cause they're also at high risk as well. What kind of training did the barbers get beforehand? You know, um, they got. It, it sounds like it was relatively variable. It just I, I looked at the appendix and didn't see a whole lot about the actual training protocol, and it's not really. I don't think outlined too much in the study, but they were taught at least through the intervention, and some of them were actually trained even to take a blood pressure properly. But it turned out that wasn't happening routinely, and so that eventually defaulted to the pharmacists um, in the intervention group. So I, I don't think the training was that extensive. I guess to answer your question. I just think it's 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 really interesting that they used barbers in the first place. I, I mean, I I understand that there's uh, cultural di- differences, but just the historicity behind barbers oh, and sure. how they've been involved in healthcare in the first place is it's like we're going full circle. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought sure. about that. All right, so time for Matt to do his article. Okay, the the article that I chose was the Salt ED or the Salted trial. This was this was featured in a Neff Journal Club uh, in the month of March, and I just love this article. It's a cluster randomized trial where they enrolled patients coming into the emergency department. It included thirteen thousand patients, over thirteen thousand patients who came into the ED and were admitted to non ICU beds. And the reason they wanted to do this study is because there's been some suggestion that balanced crystalloids or balanced IV fluids are superior to normal saline. And there's a lot of a lot of things written about normal saline. It is uh, my favorite writing on this has been done by Palm Crit, Dr. Farkas, where, uh, sorry if I'm saying his name wrong, which I assume I am. And uh, he basically writes nine reasons why you shouldn't use normal saline. He starts off by calling it a hypertonic acidotic solution and then talks about how it does all sorts of bad things to the body uh, in animal studies. There's some evidence that it worsens hemodynamics and uh, may increase pro-inflammatory cytokines. It might have increased risk of acute kidney injury, which might be from vasoconstriction. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's just like a whole bunch of reasons why normal saline is not normal, and probably it's a it's a big misnomer, which people have, I'm not the first person to point that out, or he's not the first person to point that out. 
So this study, the primary outcome was hospital-free days at 28 or 30 days, and there was no difference between the the balanced solutions and normal saline, but the secondary outcome was, and I love this too, it was MAKE, which is Major Adverse Kidney Events, uh, I guess, mm. you know. <laughs> We have major adverse oh, cardiac that. events, but now we have major adverse kidney events, which is one of my favorite things I've read about in the past few months. And what? so what major adverse kidney events were, uh, there, there was death, there was the need for renal, new re, renal replacement therapy, or there was increase of serum creatinine by 200% from baseline. And they go into detail about how they calculated baseline. It was baseline sometime in the past year, uh, not baseline on admission to the hospital. And basically, this uh, this showed that for major adverse kidney events, there was about a 1% difference between favoring the balanced solutions over normal saline. It's a composite outcome, so you have to look at the uh, which one of those composites, parts of the composite drove this, and it was actually the increased serum creatinine by over 200%. The in the sister trial of this, also done at Vanderbilt, was the SMART trial, and this was done in ICU patients. Basically, the same protocol, but patients that went to the ICU. And in that, there was also a one percent difference in make, but it was driven by mortality. So I think that's where this got a lot of uh, press. It was a small difference in a single in a composite outcome in a single center, but the argument is like, okay, we use so much of this stuff that even a small difference uh, might might make a, you know, if you, on a population-wide scale, it might be important. And there's two large ongoing trials uh, that, that might answer this a little bit better in the future. Uh, so we can link to all that. But the, the post by Swapnil of Neff Journal Club is amazing, and it has all the resources, does a much better job of summarizing things than I just did. I think um, a good takeaway of um, these trials is, you know, um, that really a lot of the reasons why we continue to do normal saline instead of LR, there's no, really no good reason. So, yeah. Yeah. They, they basically, I've seen two different, uh, two different estimates of cost difference. And one was six cents per liter. The other was 25 cents per liter. And then if you calculate out that the number needed to harm with normal saline is around a hundred. So it, it comes out to anywhere between six and $28 to prevent one, one instance of acute kidney injury. Um, so, you know, I think for that, going by that reasoning, to me, this is practice changing. I, I mean, I'm not going to completely stop using normal saline, but I am. I, I am using more lactated ringers now. And and the median amount of normal saline that was given in this in this trial was about a liter, just a little over a liter. So you don't have, it's yeah. not, we're not talking about people that were like massively volume resuscitated. And, right. and if you, if you take the results of the SMART trial with this, you know, that's suggesting that the sicker patients might uh, have increased mortality with normal saline. So your sicker patients, I would especially think there, do you want to use a balanced solution? Yeah. And this works out well with the uh, non-availability of normal saline anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and, and 95% of the patients uh, got uh, ringers lactate or lactated ringers. It wasn't like all these patients were getting the big expensive plasma light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, plasma, it's very expensive. Right. I'll give this uh, article four Mrs. Dashes out of five. <laughs> okay. I'll give it four hotcakes out of five. Mmm, hotcakes. Oh, wait, can we use hotcakes if that's like a McDonald's thing? Can't yes. say that word. Flapjacks? <laughs> Flapjacks. 
What what is happening? <laughs> you guys want to move on? Yeah, let's uh, move on to some hot takes. All right, so these hot takes are meant to be nugget-sized and um, to give our listeners an idea of the news that are going on in the um, general medical literature and news. Um, so I guess, did you guys get a chance to take a look at um, the list? Is there one oh, that I um, you look. guys want to talk about first? <laughs> I, right, I, do we have votes? Twitter-based medicine? I think we're, uh, we have to start with Milton Packer. Come on. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. So this, this, this blew up on Twitter. Um, and I've got some, um, great quotes. So this article was by Milton Packer. It's, uh, he called it, uh, Twitter, um, uh, about Twitter based medicine and he's, uh, posted on MedPage today. And so basically he goes on this tirade about how Twitter based medicine is like ridiculous. So, so what my first favorite quote is, I do not have a Twitter account. I have never tweeted. I follow no one on Twitter and no one follows me. And that is true for the majority of the leaders in my generation, leaders of medicine in my generation. And then later on the article, he, he talks about how people on Twitter have no expertise. And so then he says, but the lack of expertise did not help them, did not keep them from posting strong opinions all too often. Those are those with the least experience showed the greatest expression of glee in their pretense to bring down some someone else's work. And this is based on his experience. Yeah. So he, he absolutely had such great experience to, to explain how horrible Twitter is for evidence-based medicine. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Can, can I just, first of all, tell the, so Milton Packer is a very well-established uh, researcher. He was most recently, or one of his recent projects, he was the co-PI for the Paradigm HF trial, which was the Sacubitril Valsartan medicine for heart failure. So this guy is a big-time researcher, and thank you to him for all he's done there. I, I think he's way off on the Twitter thing. I mean, on people on Twitter are sharing evidence-based medicine. They're, they're saying this is a great article. They're critiquing articles. I don't understand how this is. No one is claiming that, that we, we know, uh, right. you know, no one's claiming to be an expert. We're just, it's a bunch of people collaborating, sharing opinions on, on medical literature. Uh, I mean, he's doing, he's doing the great research and people on Twitter are trying to make sense of it and figure out how other people are using it and get support from their colleagues. Well, I, I sort of view it like, you know, Twitter's sort of like a radio, but he's sort of complaining that uh, there's nothing good on the radio, but he's just listening to the wrong channels. So I'm, I'm going to read a quote to you. It says, uh, that it will ever come into general use, notwithstanding its value, is extremely doubtful because its beneficial application requires much time and gives a good bit of trouble both to the patient and to the practitioner because its hue and character are foreign and opposed to all our habits and associations. This is in reference to the stethoscope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So whenever a new tool is used in medicine, it's going to, there's going to be some disparaging um, opinions about that. It depends on, on how we use it. We can use a stethoscope incorrectly, just like we can use Twitter incorrectly. We've got to be very careful with how we use all these tools. Well, I mean, I think the article shows a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how Twitter is actually used. Like, I don't think anyone's saying, here's a medical fact, and then I incorporate that fact into my actual practice. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not how the discussion works. That's not how... That's just not how it works. So I, I, th I feel like the basic premise of the article is a little bit misguided. And again, all due respect to an impressive researcher, but in this case, I, I, I feel like it shows maybe not quite a full understanding of how Twitter is actually used in terms of affording your medical education. And we, we have to move. Well, everyone get onto Twitter and we can talk about this more. So, all right. What do you guys want to do next? You're, you're in charge, Chris. Coffee. 
Yeah. Coffee. Oh, you want to do the coffee? coffee? All right, let's coffee. do the coffee. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So uh, very recently, I think end of March, there was a New York Times article. A California judge ruled um, based on a lawsuit that was filed in 2010 that coffee companies in California need to post cancer warnings because acrylamide has been found to produce cancer in some areas, I guess. Um, this, this, <laughs> <laughs> this chemical is produced in the bean roasting process, but has also been found like when you bake or fry any high carbohydrate food, like baked potatoes and all sorts of things like that. California has like this, this list of 900 toxic things that can cause cancer and they have label warnings and everything. I think everyone has definitely seen these warnings that say this blah, blah does uh, contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer, birth defects and reproductive harm. I think they've labeled cell phones and laptops with this warning. So it's just another one of those weird things that I thought that everyone thought was sort of interesting. Yeah, Chris, I mean, we're all getting cancer. I, I looked I looked up uh, some of the literature on ac- acrylamide. There was a, in the International Journal of Cancer in 2015, there was an article. Uh, they th- This article was like looking at lots of observational data. Uh, they basically found no relation to the risk for the most common cancers with acrylamide. There was a trend towards significance for renal uh, renal cancer or kidney cancer. And then for non-smokers, there was a trend towards significance for endometrial and ovarian cancer um, for the highest, you know, the highest consumers of acrylamide. They didn't really quantify exactly how much these people were getting and how that relates to how much we get in coffee and, and our diet. Right. So I think it's kind of, you know, I'm still going to drink coffee. Uh, and Paul- It's meaningless. It's mean- <laughs> so if this, so here's the thing. <laughs> I guarantee you that if they found out that the substance was in prune juice, no one would care. Like, it's not – the reason this is getting popular press is because people like coffee, and so it's something to actually talk about. But in terms of the actual clinical significance, all right. I, I've not been able to find any evidence at all. So it's, this is pop science of just the absolute worst sort as far as I'm concerned, and also coffee is sustaining my life. <laughs> the next one I want to talk about is the aromatherapy. Oh, I know you want to do that one. You've talked about it so much on Twitter. <laughs> I just want more people to hear about this and try it out. I feel like right. I want to I want to hear people's thoughts on this. So this Michael April et al. Annals of uh, Emergency Medicine in the past month or so, this was a randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial. Patients coming to the emergency department with just nausea or vomiting complaint, and they're using alcohol pads. They rip them open. You hold it under your nose by one to two centimeters and inhale deeply for... Uh, up to two minutes, and then they kind of check nausea at 30 minutes was their main outcome, and it beat on Dancitron in a, in a head-to-head trial. I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> because Zofran no, yes. sucks if you are already nauseous. Give them some Finnegan. Compare it to Finnegan. Okay, let's use, a, and, let's uh, use uh, generic names, please. Okay, Matt, I'm not con- convinced. You're, we're comparing this to on Dancitron, which sucks if you're already nauseous. We know this. It's it's just it's cr- it's kind of crap if you're nauseous. It's good for preventing nausea, especially like post-op nausea. I want to see a comparison with promethazine head to head. Then I'll be convinced. Okay. Yeah, and I think I think blinding was also a problem in this trial because it's pretty. If you have alcohol versus normal saline soaked pad under your nose, you're going to know if you're getting the alcohol. And I think something like sixty percent of the patients guessed if they were in the alcohol like group. Torture. It's like torture. Don't do that again. I'm not nauseous anymore. I don't want that anymore. <laughs> I tried it. I, I thought it was kind of nice. I don't know. Hmm. Paul, any any thoughts on this one? No, not really. Yeah, it's the blinding I feel is a little bit tricky, but uh, it's neat. Everybody 
leave a stack of alcohol pads by the bedside. If a patient's nauseous, tell him to try it. It can't hurt. So the next hot take would be opiates no better than non-opiates for chronic pain. This is from JAMA 20, uh, 2018 here in March. It was the SPACE trial. Um, basically, they found that there was no statistically um, better pain-related function in those patients with opiates versus non-opiate medications. I think this sort of relates to a lot of our recent studies, like the one from JAMA in 2017, which, you know, had people with extremity pain that was randomized to like ibuprofen plus Tylenol versus oxycodone versus hydrocodone and found that those with ibuprofen plus Tylenol actually did better. So I think that's interesting. And, and Chris, the other thing that I just wanted to bring up was that the, to go along with this, this opioid versus non-opioid thing, I would just like to, to hammer this home for the audience. Think about prescribing naloxone to patients who are at high risk. The Surgeon General just put out a warning. There's a lot of high-risk groups. And so everybody, their, the patients and their family members should know how to use this medication. And we'll link to a video that basically tells you, uh, shows you how to use this. Because I had never actually seen the device or put it together myself. So I think all providers should know how to use this and patients and family members. And one thing to know that depending on the state, pharmacists can also... Um, give a prescription for naloxone to people who just walk into the pharmacy. So it does depend on state, but I, I, I do have patients who can go in to the pharmacy. They can say they want naloxone. They don't have to say for themselves or for other people, but they can get a prescription from the pharmacist and then get it right there. Maybe well, if we do one more hot take, the last one would be an interesting one that I know Matt had an interest in. Um, spironolactone versus clonidine as a fourth drug therapy in resistant hypertension. This was from, uh, from hypertension in February 2018. Uh, basically, there were 1,500 patients with resistant hypertension, and basically they're randomized to 12 weeks of spironolactone or clonidine, and they found that spironolactone promoted greater decrease in blood pressures compared to clonidine. I, I mean... I just don't know who's using clonidine like that people like people that regularly treat blood pressure. I think clonidine is just it's it's not a great drug. There's there's withdrawal, there's sedation. I just I'm just not using it at all. I mean, spironolactone is such a better choice. Yeah, I mean, there's rebound hypertension too. You know, if they forget to take it because it's dosed multiple times a day. Although you know, in my uh, my experience with my residents, you know, by the time they hit like number four, number five drugs, you know, they start forgetting. It's like, all right, so I have my ACE or ARB, I have my beta blocker, I have my diuretic. They forget diuretic all the time too. Um, and, and then they start saying, what, what's left? And I'm like, yeah. spironolactone, plerinone. <laughs> and um, it's definitely, I, I feel, I agree, this is a forgotten drug often with uh, at least some of my trainees. Well, I, I think they use clonidine because this is to me, I, I almost saw this as like a, a part two of the Pathway 2 trial. So the, the Pathway 2 trial compared spironolactone, bisoprolol, doxazacin, and placebo. So this is just looking at additional agent. Now, clonidine in addition to these other agents. That's the way I, that I initially looked at the trial. And so I, I thought it was reasonable, actually, to look at clonidine in, in this case as potential for, um, for a fourth agent. But, I mean, I, I, it just makes sense that spironolactone would be a better agent to use. Paul? <laughs> yes. No, I mean, that's right. Like, clonidine... <laughs> Is, it seems like almost a sign of surrender. You know, it's, it's I've, I've given up. I have nothing left to offer you. Why, why don't we try this? But I've never, it's not what I even consider fourth line if I can get away with it. And I feel like actually most of the residents feel the same way. So I'm not sure that's part of the culture or what. But it's just, it's, like everyone said, it's inconvenient. And the rebound is just awful for patients who may not be adherent. So I think we're going to wrap up our hot takes. I hope you guys had a good time with this. 
Um, just a couple other things that we're gonna we're gonna post up up on the site, just so you know. Um, I'll have links to the NEF Madness 2018 winner, the C diff uh, clinical practice guidelines from the 2017 IDSA, a bunch of other stuff, including procalcitonin testing, as well as you know new hemoglobin A1C targets that ACP has been suggesting, and that's sort of a, a teaser for um, an upcoming talk that we're gonna have at ACP. Be on the lookout for more episodes and the topic of reviewing the literature. Um, we just had an episode on clinical reasoning with Dr. Dollywall. It was fantastic. We do plan on having him come back to discuss on how he reviews the literature, so that might be of use to a lot of people who enjoy this episode. Um, we're also working on a, liter- a literature search tutorial with our correspondent in Toronto, and hopefully that will be posted sometime soon as well as supplemental materials on our website. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) You can find the show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our show notes. You can send emails to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Christopher Chu. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Oh, hi, Paul. Wasn't he on snakes on a plane? No, uh, no. Was he? So this Snake is eyes. gonna go great. <laughs> oh, my bad. You have somehow confused Nick Cage with Samuel L. Jackson, which should, by all rights, be impossible. <laughs> <laughs>